Um, so yeah, I wanted to start by really just talking a little bit. About a year ago, um, I did a, a conversation with some people at an event that we ran, which was again about loneliness and isolation. I talked a little bit about my experience, and at the time, I was really talking about the idea of being lonely and isolated, even when you're kind of surrounded by friends and family and things like that. Really the idea that if we don't talk about how we feel and we don't share things, then actually we end up quite isolated and, and to the point for me where it was a life-threatening situation because I didn't share things that I was struggling with. And it's not uncommon for people to do that. Um, and that really was a huge moment for me because from then, doing that, I was involved in some mental health work, which I stayed involved with, which ended up with me being fortunate enough to be asked to take on this role of the ambassador to get involved in this mental health work across Waveney, and then we had the opportunity to kind of change feedback and work with access, and so it's been a, an amazing kind of 12 months, and I think part of the catalyst for that for me personally was, was talking about that and, and getting more involved, because before that, I think I've been very much talking on the talk in terms of encouraging people to talk about their own difficult times and their own mental health issues, but actually that's really easy for me to do and then not do it myself, so it just felt like I was kind of not really walking the walk as well, so a big thing for me was to kind of share my story a little bit and I just wanted to kind of build on that because the last 12 months as well as being exciting and interesting have also taught me a lot about myself so I'm just going to do a few minutes if you guys don't mind if it's okay with you I'm just going to talk a little bit about my last sort of year or so and some things that I've learned about myself because I think they they link to loneliness and isolation as well uh, and my experience of it um, and some things it's amazing because of the things I've done the last 12 months or so at 40 years old um, I've suddenly realized stuff about myself that I didn't know before so I've kind of got to 40, and I didn't really know myself as well as I thought I knew myself. And that's been quite a weird situation, especially for the last several months. Um, yeah, especially for the last several months, because I've really come to a few realizations about the way that I approach life and the way that I approach things that have actually been quite challenging to me to think about and to kind of think about how I, I do things. Um, so yeah, we've done all this stuff over the last year, and the big thing for me that I'll talk about in a bit is a quite profound experience of running the London Marathon. You can probably look at me and say I'm not really designed to run the London Marathon. I'm certainly not designed to do it in the hottest London Marathon ever. Uh, so it wasn't very good for me in terms of how I felt on the day physically. But it was an amazing experience, and I'm going to kind of come back around to that. And so I guess this, if I had a theme for this talk around loneliness and isolation, it would be my experience of loneliness and isolation in the context of kind of self-doubt and self-hate and anxiety and obsession and not feeling good enough. Because I think that's my story and I don't know if other people have that, um, but my story in life is not feeling good enough. And so that drives a lot of the difficult things that I find in life, is kind of coming back to that. And it was complete, I've got to tell you, I'll talk about it in a minute, but running the, the last several miles of the London Marathon, that's all I could think. It's the only thought that was, was present in my mind, was not being good enough, even though I was at the middle of doing something that I never thought I'd be able to do. And so it's quite an amazing, like the last five miles or so was uh, really profound for me. Um, so yeah, those of you who haven't heard some of this stuff before, and some of you have, is it okay if I do like five minutes just to give you a little bit of my background? Some of you have heard it before, so try not to get too bored and fidgety. But just by way of background, my upbringing was fairly kind of okay most of the time whilst I was experiencing it. Um, we would, it wasn't, didn't really live in particular poverty until I was in my sort of teens, and then I kind of experienced kind of quite sort of harsh poverty, I suppose, for two or three years in my sort of later teens. But generally speaking, both my parents worked and my parents were together until I was about 11 or 12 and then they got divorced and it wasn't particularly at the time challenging. It was fairly amicable. My father was an alcoholic, so throughout my whole childhood, he, he drank before I was born and, and throughout his life until he died when I was in my early 20s. And so I grew up a child of an alcoholic and I'd never ever experienced that as uh, an issue for me until I kind of realized that it was. 
And so about five or six years ago, I went along to a meeting which was other people who had the experience of being a child of an alcoholic and realised that lots of common personality traits, lots of common responses to difficult situations were shared by people who'd got that lived experience. And that was really helpful to me because a bit like loneliness and isolation, as soon as you hear that somebody else has got the same problem, it doesn't seem quite so difficult to deal with, does it? And so that was a big thing for me because if, if anybody else has ever grown up around addiction, what tends to happen is you assume that if I've reached a point in my life where I'm fairly certain I'm not going to become an alcoholic, then I've not caught that off my dad. You know what I mean? I mean, you can't catch it, but you know what I mean. So I've, I've overcome it. I haven't got a problem with it. But actually, it's not whether you repeat that behavior that's the problem. It's your responses that you learn through it. So a lot of people who grow up as a child of an alcoholic learn to be quite people-pleasing, extremely averse to the feeling of shame and being judged. So that's a real difficult thing for me, is if I sense that someone's disapproving of me, I find it really difficult. So I try and work to, to stop that happening. And that's why you become people-pleasing and you sometimes take on too much. Uh, and do too much for people or, or not enough for yourself. So that was kind of, the, that's the context of me. So that's where I was a few years ago, and I guess I still am working on that. Right, okay, so where was I? I, um, I was talking, I think, a little bit about my, my background, my past. So um, Whistlestop Tour was, was, was really a child, of, uh, you know, with uh, growing up around addiction. And then really it was until my mid-30s that I kind of was around other people who were talking about that openly, and that made me probably understand a little bit more about some of my um, experiences in life and where they come from and why I find those, some of those feelings difficult to deal with. And, and for those of you who don't know the story, really the, the, the kind of the um, peak of that really came in about 10 years ago, no, not quite long ago, seven or eight years ago now. I ran a small business really badly and um, the business ended up uh, going under. And I didn't face any of that at any point in time until it kind of happened. Um, and then when it did happen, the kind of the idea for me to cope with like shame and that judgment was too much. So I tried to take my life quite quite seriously. I was quite fortunate, really, that that it didn't have a lasting impact. So I took quite a lot of um, tablets to try and to try and take my life, and then didn't tell anybody that I'd done that until the point at which, if I'd have needed medical intervention, it wouldn't have been enough. So it was quite a serious attempt. Although having said that, there was no um, like there was no lasting effect to that. Uh, so I was I was very fortunate compared to some people. And there was no real indication of any specific mental health issue, really. It's just the fact, like many people, 75% of people who try to take their lives don't talk to anyone about it in the year before. So that way I was, I was just one of those 75%, and I was just lucky that um, I, it wasn't successful. Because what I found was quite quickly, um, no, I didn't talk to people about that suicide attempt, but quite quickly, of course, people didn't judge me as a bad person because I'd run a business badly. They talked to me as a person who they thought was quite an okay person and try, tell, try, treat me with some sort of compassion. And that made a huge difference. It still didn't teach me all that I needed to know because I still carried on struggling with some of those things. But it was a huge moment for me, I guess. Um, and, but it's not something that's ever kind of repeated itself for me. It's not something I've ever felt as a solution before. And I think one of the reflections I have on that is actually... If you're a person in life who treats life very logically, um, and I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a, there's a male or female thing, but some people have a, a brain which treats problems as something that need resolving, and some people treat problems as, that need understanding. And if you're someone like me who tries to fix problems, if you have an ultimate problem, which is that, that this table is making the world worse, you wouldn't for a second doubt that the solution to that was to get rid of that table, would you? Like if, I, if you knew that this table made the world worse, there's a logical solution to making the world better, isn't there? If you believe that about yourself, and you absolutely believe it, as I did in that, that time, and if you're a logical thinker, then there's actually a logical solution to that, and that's where I was at. Um, but fortunately, I, I don't think like that anymore, and I didn't 
since then. So I guess my experience really is the idea of uh, loneliness and isolation coming from that feeling that I talked of earlier, which was the feeling of not being good enough, which I found is something sort of prevalent amongst people who've kind of grown up around addiction. You really challenge yourself around feeling good enough um, and feeling worthy and feeling kind of as though people aren't judging you uh, as not, not a good person or not successful or whatever it may be. And it's not, a doubt, it's not a doubtful thing either. It's not something that I challenge. So for most of my life, I've kind of just accepted that I'm not good enough for whatever it is that I'm experiencing at that time. So it's not something that I've kind of thought is doubtful. It's just a fact in my life. And so I kind of go through it assuming that I'm not good enough. And then you're always starting from a point of trying to prove that you are, aren't you? And so that becomes quite difficult. Because what you tend to do is the other thing that if you grow up around addiction that you learn to do is that the world's an unpredictable place. And so you try and make it more unpredictable. And for me, and I don't know if anybody else experiences this, I find feelings much more easy to deal with than people. Because people are less predictable to me than feelings. Because I can do something about feelings. I'm adept enough, particularly having one of the skills that you learn as a child of an alcoholic is actually that you understand quite quickly the emotion that the person you're with is experiencing. So if I'm causing you to disapprove of me, I'll pick up on that quite quickly and change my behavior to stop you doing that. Or if you're worried or if you're nervous or if you're afraid, I will change my behavior quite quickly to make you stop feeling that. Not because I want to help you, because it feels like I'm being a nice guy, but I'm not. It's not to help you, it's to help me, because I don't want to feel that difficult thing. So I like to think I'm a nice guy as well, but... I'm not doing that because I'm a nice guy. I'm doing that because your bad feelings are too much for me to handle. Does that make sense? So if, if you've got bad feelings and I've got to experience them, that's worse for me. So I stop you feeling them. So I sense that you need somebody to be happy, to make you feel happy, so I'll be happy. And all it does is protects me, keeps me safe, makes the world predictable. People are a lot less predictable than that. So I find that much more difficult. So as soon as I can get to their feelings, I'm safe with them. And so that's why... Um, I kind of go through life. If you start, you start point as well as I'm not good enough, that you're a better person than me and you're going to think I'm a bad person. I'm going to work quite hard to overcome that. Does that make sense as well? So I'm kind of moving towards a place where I can get you on my side, I suppose. And that's when you start to take on too much or you promise things that you can't do or you go to four meetings at the same time or whatever it is that you're going to try and do in a day that I do most days. Um, and you try and avoid, if you feel the feeling of shame and not being good enough is one to try and avoid as well. And so if you're kind of living in a state of trying to be what other people want you to be, you're not truly experiencing the world as yourself. Does that, does that make sense as well? So if I'm always trying to be what the other person wants to be, I'm neither being honest to them or honest to me because they're not going to experience me as the real person. And I'm also not going to let them sort of experience life as it really is. So if you have a partner or if you have a good friend and there's something difficult that you ought to tell them about and you don't tell them about it, you can tell yourself and I tell myself that that's about me protecting them from feeling bad. But it's not at all. It's about them from seeing that I've made a mistake that they might judge me harshly for and they might disapprove of me for. And so if they do that, they're going to think I'm a bad person, aren't they? If they think I'm a bad person, I can't cope with that because I can't cope with not feeling good enough. So that's the kind of journey through life that I kind of take. I'm aware that I'm kind of making myself sound like a completely incompetent human being. I, I do survive through life. I've, got, you know, I've done okay generally in life. It's an it's a underlying thing for me. That's where I'm fortunate. It's for me... It's an underlying issue. It's not something that kind of... And it's also one that's actually quite helpful in a lot of ways. I worked in an environment for years at Archer where I was in a sales environment and actually making people feel like you were doing something for them that they wanted was actually quite a good thing because they tended to invest more money in the things you were trying to sell them. 
so most of my issues in life are ones that are socially acceptable. So that makes life easier for me as well. And I'm aware of that. I'm aware that I'm fortunate in the things that I've been affected by. But I'll give you an example of, I'll give you an example of how difficult I find it to face difficult things. A while, a while ago, I was up in Newcastle. So I went up to Newcastle, and I went to a cafe for breakfast, and I ordered breakfast. And I went up, and I said, I'll have a sausage sandwich. And I paid for it, and I went and sat down. And then a few moments later, the waitress brought out a small English breakfast. Nightmare situation for me. Two reasons, two problems I've got here. One is I haven't got what I wanted. So I might have to tell somebody that they haven't given me what I wanted. And then I'm going to have to give them a difficult feeling because they've let me down. And then I've got to experience their difficult feeling. Does that make sense? I don't want that. <laughs> I really don't want that. So I just thought, well, I'm not a good person. I probably just said sausage sandwich, but I'm so useless that it sounded like full English or whatever. Or I said English when I didn't say sausage and I forgot and I must have got it wrong because I must have done the wrong thing so I have to put it right. I have to fix it by not letting the waitress feel bad for bringing me the wrong food. I've now got a second problem. My second problem is have I stolen the English breakfast of somebody else in the cafe? They're going to realise that I've stolen their breakfast and then they're going to be angry at me too because I've stolen their breakfast and they can see it's me because I've not got my sausage sandwich I ordered. So now I've got somebody else's feelings to concern myself with. So the best way to deal with that is to eat the food that I didn't want as quickly as possible and get out of the cafe. Obviously, rather than tell the waitress, I'm sorry, you brought me the wrong food. Does anybody else have situations like that? Like, I feel like it's also like a British thing, not complaining, but like that is like, I'm only telling you that, not again to make myself sound like the most incompetent person in the world, but silly things like that have always caused me problems throughout my whole life. They're the things I worry about. And I got to 40 years old and didn't realise I'm actually an incredibly anxious person. And you kind of think, how do you get to 40? Sorry? I don't, I don't really have to go to Newcastle. And to be fair, it was a nice breakfast, so I probably would, I'd probably would give them another go. But I'd probably this time tell them if it got me the wrong food. But, but for me, um, yeah, I, I get myself into those situations um, because it's just incredibly difficult for me to challenge someone and make them feel bad. And, 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 and it kind of uh, pervades itself. And, um, yeah, as I said earlier, I mean, I think on the surface, it kind of makes you feel like you're just trying to be nice and trying to stop the waitress feeling bad, but I'm not. I'm trying to stop the waitress feeling bad and give me her bad feelings that I've got to deal with. Because also, I've got the problem that I feel and sense other people's disapproval and bad feelings quite significantly. And so as soon as I start sensing that, it's difficult for me. So actually, I'm just making the world easier for myself. I'm making it incredibly hard. Um, and like I say, as I got to 40 and not realised I'm a really anxious person, and it kind of sounds silly, well, how do you not know you're, not, you're an anxious person? It's because I create a framework in my life that stops me feeling anxiety. I go around the world making people feel happy with me, or safe with me, or not having... So I don't experience anxiety that often, until I acknowledge that I'm an anxious person. And then I realise I'm anxious about the most ridiculous things. So I'm actually a hypochondriac. But a hypochondriac who never goes to the doctors. Because, so I will think, if, like... Six months ago, um, I, I had some, uh, like, I must have had some, eaten something wrong and I had uh, some tummy problems. So I've got bowel cancer in my head. I've got bowel cancer, this is a nightmare. Um, but the worst, the only thing worse than having bowel cancer is going to a doctor and being told you've got bowel cancer. Does that make sense? That sounds ridiculous, but it's worse for me, like, I would, thinking and knowing, I mean, it wasn't even a doubt for, for only for like a couple of hours, but like, I've got bowel cancer and my granddad had it, and so I, it must be in the family, so I've got it. Um, but I was certain of it. But actually going to the doctor and saying, the doctor telling me that I've got bowel cancer is worse than actually if I had it and didn't know about it and died. 
it's worse for me to deal with that feeling of a doctor telling me and showing me and seeing that I'm vulnerable. That's what it's about, isn't it? So if I sit in front of the doctor and he tells me I've got a terrible illness, then he's got me the moment most vulnerable. And you can't see it my most vulnerable because if I do that, then you're going to see that I'm not a good person because I'm not good enough. But I think that's where it comes from. I don't know. Is that, is that where it comes from? Something like that. But yeah, that's where kind of my loneliness and I said, but it's quite isolating. It's quite lonely to be in that place because you don't share things with other people then, do you? Because why would I share like something like that? Because that's going to make me look vulnerable and it's going to remind me that I'm not good enough. Um, and what I've kind of started to learn is actually if you start to tell people this stuff, if you talk about this stuff, generally people kind of get it. Some people get it. And then if someone gets it, it's kind of like, oh, that wasn't so hard. And actually... If I'd have said, you know, two years before the business went under to somebody that it was really difficult and then rather than putting it on the front and making it look okay, someone would have offered me some advice and would have helped me and would have told me. The same in most areas of my life for the last, like, 40 years, to be fair. Um, but if you start to talk to someone, if you find someone who will listen, then, A, you feel more safe. And actually, it's, it's, it's far less scary than I thought. Telling someone that I am not good at something is far less scary than I thought because generally somebody else is better at it and then they either do it for you which is cool, or they tell you how to do it, which is also cool, and that's fine as well. Um, and so it's really difficult, though, because the, the, the point is, if you start to tell people about your vulnerabilities, you think, if you really knew me like I know me, then you wouldn't like me, because I don't like me. So that's still difficult, so you have to kind of work on that. Uh, and I, have to still, I still have to try and avoid kind of feeling like people are disapproving of me. So I still, I still, work, I still have to work on that. But the... The thing for me that was really profound this year was uh, running the London Marathon because um, it was a, I'm really glad that I did it, but it, it, it just completely opened my eyes to all of these kind of anxieties and things that I had in my mind. So I started, started the thing, I trained for it and all that sort of stuff. And, and um, I've got to tell you that, that I didn't finish the London Marathon because I'm a determined, stubborn person. I finished the London Marathon purely out of avoidance of people thinking I was a dickhead. Because if I walked off that London Marathon and gave up, the shame of doing that in front of other people was too much for me. So there was only, literally, I'm not being ridiculous about this, there's only three options for me to leave that race, is to finish it or not physically be able to move and someone have to lift me off or to die. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that's what I wanted, but there were only three options for me. It wasn't brave, and it wasn't like some great effort on my behalf or anything like that. It was pure avoidance of social disapproval. Like, my idea, if I had to walk off and give up, and people saw me doing that, I can't face that. So it was that I started to realize this as I'm running around this bloody 26 miles, <laughs> and it's the hottest day ever, and I hate the heat. And so I'm sort of halfway through and realize... I don't think I could do another mile and just carried on going because I couldn't face, you know, disapproval of people who might sort of think I'm, you know, giving up and just kind of got there. And I've got to say the only point in the marathon where I actually got this kind of solace where I felt like I could definitely do it, there's a point when you go under a tunnel and it's quiet and there's no people other than runners and there was shade and everything like that. And I kind of gathered myself and then I was okay again because the other thing that I realised that I found incredibly difficult was people cheering I was so glad I didn't have like a name on my shirt because people were shouting out people's names. And I realized that was too much for me. It was too much for me to hear people cheering me on. And that's not because I want people to not like me. That's the opposite. I've just told you that. 
it's because I, don't think there were, I didn't think I was worthy of that. I didn't think I, I wasn't a good runner. I was going to do it in six hours, and people can do it in two. And so I'm not brilliant at it. I'm not good at it. So why would you th approve of me for doing something that I'm not good at? It doesn't make any sense in my kind of logical mind. So if you cheer me, I just feel awful about it. It's like, I'm not worthy of being cheered for this. I've not done anything. You know, I'm only doing it because I don't want you to think I'm a prat and had to walk off. So why would you cheer me for that? And so I just found it intensely difficult. It was the most, like, probably the most emotional time of my, like, my life. It was like this, this five miles towards the end, just with this thought of, people, please stop cheering and stop making me think I'm not good enough and stop reminding me of it. And so I got to the end of this marathon and then they put the medal around your neck. So you run, you finish it, and then some woman puts a medal around your neck. And I got a medal around my neck, and I took it straight off and put it in my pocket. And that isn't because, it's not, I want you to think that I, I was ashamed of it or anything like that. I, it wasn't that. I just, again, I just couldn't face, like I'd had it in my mind. I thought, oh, I guess the end I'll probably, like, you know, celebrate or something like that. And I remember, and I always see these people walking around in <laughs> medals. It's a terrible thing to think. I was thinking, oh, what is this school sports day? Like, you know, you're walking around with your medal. What's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> and of course, people should walk around with their medals. They should be really proud. They've just run a marathon. But I couldn't do at that moment in time, for some reason, like everything, my life experience at that point just brought me to a point where I couldn't face it. Like it was like, I can't have this, I can't be cheered for this because I haven't done something that's worth being cheered of. And so it wasn't the day itself that kind of really changed and shifted my thinking. It was kind of a couple of weeks after it when I started to think about what I'd done. And actually one of my concerns about running is I'd, I'd quite, ended up quite enjoying running and got a lot healthier from it. I lost a bit of weight, so I was quite pleased. About it. One concern was I'm quite goal-oriented, so... Once I've run the marathon, if I haven't got another marathon to run, I'll just stop running and, and go back to Burger King or whatever. And, but I quite found that I quite enjoyed running. That was a really good thing. So after the marathon, a couple of weeks later, I was really keen to get running again, and so I've carried on running. And that was a big thing for me as well, to do something that didn't have a kind of aim or objective to it. Um, and then I started processing what, what was this whole marathon stuff about? You know, what, why were you so like, wound up about it? What was going on here? And then I think I just kind of realized, actually, it was just all linked to this anxiety stuff. That's when I really processed the fact that I'm quite an anxious person. That I've got this hypochondriac thing and all these kind of things going on. Um, and I just worked out that, actually, it was not so much anymore the feeling of I am not good enough, but it was actually the most scary thing isn't thinking you're not good enough, because that's quite an easy place to be in some ways. Because if you know you're not good enough, actually, you can just kind of stay there, can't you? If I know that I'm not good enough, if I know I'm not good enough, I, I don't have to go out of that space. I can just sort of either feel sorry for myself or just be angry or whatever. The feeling that you might be good enough for a few things is much more difficult. Does anybody else agree with that? Like the feeling that actually now I might be good at a few things. I might be worth a few things. I might not have to always pretend that I'm good at everything or that I'm not worried about stuff. And that I can tell people that I'm worried. I can run a marathon and people can put a medal around my neck and it's actually worthy of that medal because it's okay, I did do something, you know, even if it was just because I didn't want to face looking an idiot. I still did it. I still got to the end of it. And I carried on doing it. So it's like a huge uh, thing for me to kind of get to that. Um, and it was, you know, life-changing life experience for me. Like the second or third life-changing experience of my life. The first one um, of the last sort of seven or eight years was, was the moment when I, I tried to take my life. It was a huge thing for me to, to kind of realize that was, you know, that I was capable of that. Uh, the second one was, was certainly kind of like um, this marathon, you know, so getting to this marathon and, and finishing it and doing it and then processing it the, the, the last several months, really. And, and it's really weird because I've kind of suddenly noticed and I started thinking about talking today and sort of thinking, I feel like a happier person. I don't know why I'm a happier person now than I was like six months ago. It doesn't make any sense. Not, not that much has changed. Um, but of course it has. Everything's changed because actually I've kind of, even if it's only one small thing, I've kind of thought, oh, I might be good enough. 
And so I guess without um, wanting to take up too much more time, that, that my main point really is that what it's taught me is that you have to let people in. Loneliness, isolation, whatever it is, whether it's physical or whether it's like mine, it's mental where you isolate yourself from other people's feelings, the only way to go forward, and it's really different, I'm not like flippant about this, I'm not saying just go out and meet, like I'm saying today, go and say hello to someone, that's fine, it's very flippant. It's really, really difficult, I know that, so I'm not saying this to anybody, just saying, oh, just, you just get, up, get on with life and go and speak to people and tell them that you're really scared of stuff. Oh, you can't do that, it took me 40 years, so you can't just do that, but it is, I can only tell you that hopefully what we'll learn today from the other people is it's so powerful to speak to other people and to trust somebody else. You know, I've never trusted anybody. Very few people in my whole life I've properly trusted to tell things to. And that's really lonely. Uh, more lonely, actually, than, than in some ways probably being in, in the physically lonely place because you're just surrounded by people that you want to kind of tell them something, but you, you can't, actually. And so like that idea of trust, trusting people, and I've now got... You know, it's only a small pool of people, but there's a small pool of people around me now I know that I trust to tell certain things to, and it's just life-changing. And so my message about loneliness and isolation is, yes, there's huge work for us to do in these rural areas around sort of physical loneliness, but when we see the work today, what we'll see is a massive thing that we're doing is, is really around kind of the isolation of your own mind and your own thoughts and your own concerns. And I just encourage anybody to kind of, who's in that place, just think about, so all you can do for the moment is think about trusting somebody to talk to about that because it, I, I can tell you from my point of view that it make a huge difference and I've got to say the other thing I, I would stress that what I always have to stress is that I'm incredibly fortunate in life all of my kind of uh, well-being mental well-being concerns all of these anxieties all these have actually driven me forward in a lot of ways as well so lots of jobs I've had have been have been helped by the fact that I will go the extra mile I'll work too hard I'll take too much on I'll do stuff lots of things in life, lots of family members and things like that have benefited from some ways in me doing that. So I've, I'm all of my kind of, most of my issues are socially acceptable. So that's really cool in, in a way. So actually I've got this far and I've still got lots of people who quite like me and quite trust me and haven't kind of walked away from me. I know some people in life don't have that and that's, that's really difficult. So I'm, I don't want people to think I'm just sort of saying I'll live my life because you can't do that. But I would just say that if that's one thing we can do for people is think about reaching out so that they know people are there and then those people feeling like there's some way of kind of trusting and taking a step forward, it'll be a huge thing. So I guess that's my, my kind of introduction to loneliness and isolation. I hope it made some kind of sense, I don't know. Um, I wanted to just talk a little bit about what we're going to do today uh, and then I'll, uh, I'll get Catherine up and she will um, make much more sense than I did and uh, be much more interesting.